Welcome to PNC C-Speak, the language of executives. I'm John Bernstein, Regional President of PNC Bank New England, alongside my co-host, Carolyn Jones, Market President and Publisher of the Boston Business Journal. Thanks, John. It's great to be with you on PNC C-Speak. Each podcast features local executives talking about relevant and timely business topics. This knowledge sharing platform showcases leaders with forward thinking approaches that disrupt the status quo and cause us to think differently. Our guest today is Dr. Brent Kreit, president of Bentley University. Brent, welcome. So glad you could join us today. Please, can you share a bit about yourself, your background, your career trajectory, and how, during the pandemic, you came to Bentley as president in the summer of 2001? Sure delighted at the anticipation of this, this conversation. So I am here in my second year, about 18, 19 months into uh, my presidency at Bentley. Started my prior presidency uh, before COVID and tried to lead it through that. Came here toward the end of COVID and, and tried to provide the leadership to get us uh, through this and really interesting context to uh, university presidencies during this time. I am from Detroit. Uh, I'm, I'm a business school guy and have, have been uh, deans at a couple of business schools. And so the opportunity to come to a place like Bentley University, which has a demonstrable and enduring commitment to free enterprise and to the marketplace was really just a, a wonderful convergence of opportunity. My prior presidency was at a very different kind of university, an amazing, iconic, historic uh, HBCU, historically black college university down in Daytona Beach. That was really on the edge and, and needed some, some leadership that we feel privileged to have been able to provide. But the move here uh, is really my sweet spot. And, and I feel that almost everything that I've done in my, my previous career, my international work, my work in poverty alleviation and economic development around the world was to enable me to be here at this time at a particularly critical inflection period for Bentley University in particular, and you know, higher education writ large, which is, is going through all kinds of challenges. So I am just thrilled to death to get to know New England and Boston and this university community and folks like you. And so I'm grateful for this opportunity. Given your background and your focus on business as in a large part of the, your career, and then having joined Bentley during the pandemic, as well as a time of probably the, the biggest disruption in higher education that's ever happened. So how did those challenges you know, influence or change or shift the way that you lead at Bentley versus perhaps other roles? Yeah, I think that the, the, the pandemic and coming into a new organization required a intentional and necessary recalibration of what leadership looks like, right? I feel fortunate that I started, you know, gone through COVID with the previous place that was far less well-resourced than a Bentley University. And I came in with a little bit of confidence because we got through COVID in a really difficult environment with marginalized students, poor community. And so coming up here, I felt really good about our, our chances. But but look, our focus, I mean, we are a residential-based, place-based university, as are so many. And that operating model no longer held, right? And so we had to recalibrate everything from knowledge transfer to pedagogy to what it means to be an engaged faculty to how do we balance the need to maintain our commitment to, uh, to education and knowledge creation versus, you know, how do we keep our community safe? right? 
we're not an inexpensive institution, so how can we make sure that we're giving our, our students their, their, their money's worth and how can we maintain, you know, the sort of revenue streams that we need to. And so it was all of that. And I felt privileged to have an amazing leadership team that really just responded and pivoted as necessary. And our board was great and our faculty were on board. And so all of us had to coalesce around a new and emerging narrative uh, that was different from anything that any of us were used to and really pleased with, with how, we, uh, how we got through it. Bentley is a university, as we discussed, with the emphasis on business. And from your website, I love the slogan, Bentley University is a place for successful leaders who set out to create a positive change in our communities, organizations, and the world. Please tell us a bit about your focus and how business can change lives for the better. Yeah, this is where, once again, I, I just feel so fortunate. The, the convergence between the history and um, impact of this university and my own worldview um, are so intimately aligned that, uh, you know, it's just a rare thing and, and I'm, I'm lucky. So first and foremost, we believe that the most pressing, wicked, critical challenges in the world one, cannot be addressed through a single discipline and are fundamentally sort of um, market-oriented problems. So if you take everything from environmental degradation, sustainability, poverty alleviation, access to health care, educational inequities, we believe that those are fundamentally, John, market problems. They may not appear that way to people, but, but at their core, uh, the market has a role to its own. And so... We say that, look, if you want to come in and run a, run a hedge fund or get into fintech, that's awesome. Bentley is your place. But we expect you during that journey to take your skill set and to recognize that there's a greater good. And this notion of, of doing well and doing good, I know it's cliche, but it is something that we believe. And this, is, this, is, this has been our mantra. And so we think we are uniquely capable of instilling the skill sets and the character necessary to create leaders who can not only successfully enter the on-ramp to a 21st century economy, but who can make their communities and their organizations and the regions and the world a better place. And that is why we are committed to business. Would you be willing to share also some of your career experiences and how you built up to come to the point of Bentley and have this passion that you have? Yeah, so I cut my teeth. I uh, got my PhD at the University of Michigan. And so I'm a, I'm a Wolverine and I did my undergrad at Michigan State. I'm a Spartan. I'm a little confused in that. Depending uh, <laughs> on the, the, the game or the season. But I had the privilege, John, of leading Michigan's the business school's sort of premier uh, outreach and research center, the, the William Davis Institute, which was a, a uniquely created entity aimed at addressing post-secondary and transition markets and economic divergence and poverty and capacity building. So we were working just all over the world, uh, Central Asia, Latin America, South Asia, and that is what has defined my trajectory. And so I've worked with the World Bank, I've worked with the Eurasia Foundation, I've worked with the Department of State, you know, in Afghanistan and, and Ethiopia and and Southern Africa, and I was working in Namibia, like the government 10 years after independence you know, from South Africa, harnessing the power 
of the marketplace. And I want to be careful here. I have no illusions, nor does Bentley University, that the market or that capitalism, even democratic capitalism, is a panacea. It is not. I have seen the sort of insidiousness, its underbelly. I know the downside of sort of rapacious capitalism. But what we believe is that without the private sector, without the dynamism and creativity and incentives, and nothing else is going to matter. And so our hope is to create a more enabling, facilitative capitalism that can include more people into it. So I've been doing that for a long time. And business schools and economic development and human capital development have all merged in to create for me this wonderful, intuitive career trajectory that has ended at this extraordinary place, Bentley University, and that's what we do. So I don't know how lucky was that uh, that I got here. <laughs> and uh, that's my background. Well, lucky for, I think, for all of us that you're here, for sure. So as talent recruitment and retention is one of the biggest challenges you hear from employers, what insights can you share, both as an employer, obviously you have a huge, uh, you know, huge staff. What insights can you share about creating a great employee experience and culture? That's a really great question. It's something that we try to think uh, critically about, Marilyn. You know, um, we did a uh, study recently with Gallup on this issue about what millennials and others are looking for, for, you know, their employers and for organizations from whom they purchase services and, and goods. And, and look, all organizations have an obligation to recognize that their customers, particularly those, you know, under 30, have expectations that go beyond shareholder wealth creation. They have expectations beyond just, you know, profits and salaries and bonuses and, and the commitment to environmental stewardship, commitment to pluralism and inclusivity, uh, commitment to causes greater than, than their own are incredibly important. And we have been able to work with our partner organizations to help them sort of understand that. And so, of course, they want to develop their technical fluencies. Of course, they want the ability to, to rise in an organization. Of course, they want to be challenged intellectually and professionally. But they want to be aligned in their values with an organization. And that is, we think, a relatively new and important phenomenon uh, for all of us who are hiring. And we don't expect it to change anytime soon. Brent, what are you optimistic about and what worries you? So, you know, I am optimistic about the capacity of young people in this country and around the world to overcome the challenges that my generation has created for them. <laughs> I am optimistic because of their uh, abilities, their generative skills, their fluencies, and their worldview, and being around them, educating them, getting to know them, that brings me hope. I am, I'm an internationalist. I pay attention to things around the world, but I mean, even, even our own sort of discourse, our own political tribalism, our national capacity to just engage almost exclusively in our echo chambers, whatever side, uh, wherever you fall on the political spectrum, the political discourse. You know, what we see internationally, I mean, this 19th century land grab in, in, in Western Europe, it was is still, I spent time in Ukraine. I, I know colleagues there, I'm, I'm horrified by that. You know, oh, you know I, my heart is aching now with 20,000 people dead in Syria and Turkey and 
natural disasters that seem to happen in places least capable of, of um, sustaining them. Um, you know, those are, those are, those are the, the issues that, that balance out my optimism, uh, unfortunately. So, Brad, you know, you've shared with us some of the interesting turns that your career has taken. So what would you say, what's some of the best advice that you've been given? You know, so whether that's taking on a new role, keeping true to your core values or, or anything else sort of that comes to mind. And then yeah. once you tell us that, maybe you could share your advice looking ahead to the next generation. So, you know, I was uh, raised in by my mother in Detroit and I went to Detroit public schools and uh, had three siblings and, you know, it was Detroit in the 70s and it was it was just not an ideal place. And yeah, you know, I love Detroit and that will always be home. But when I was in high school, one of my teachers told me that there's something along the lines of, this was a long time ago, obviously, but I still reflect on it. He said, look, young man, it is about time for you to begin to develop your own personal philosophies. And I was like 14 or 15. What does that mean? My own personal philosophies. And Again, I was 14, I'm 61 now. I still recall that. And there's really not a not a week that goes by. And obviously as I've matured and, and exceeded any wildest expectation I ever had as a 14 year old Detroiter, how that translates today is that there is a core center of integrity in me and in each of us. And I do not ever allow myself to deviate from that core. And that's what he was saying back then, wasn't really developed. And so that for me has been just advice that has guided me through all kinds of professional and personal travails and and growth opportunities. And um, so that's something that I pay attention to. I think the advice that I would give is, and again, I, you know, I have the, I've got three kids, I got, we got grandkids and my youngest is just graduated from college a couple of years ago. And so, in, in these young people here, and they talk about you know happiness, and they talk about work-life balance, and they talk about success. And my advice to these young people is to focus less on achieving happiness and success, and more on finding meaning in their lives, professionally, personally, socially, spiritually, physically, meaning. And if you can find meaning, then the rest will come. And again, it is quintessentially American sort of cliche to say that uh, if you are passionate about what you're doing, you don't have to work a day in your life, but it's really quite true. And I know everybody can't have the, the fit and convergence that I have with what I'm doing, but I find meaning in what I do every day. And I think that's what's allowed me to, to have some success and to be where I am. And, and that is one of the pieces of advice that I would extend to young people. Wow. That's a big one. That's, those are, those are really meaningful words. Thank you so much for sharing that. As a leader in the Boston community, what are some of the key issues that you see as critical to our future and how do they shape how you lead? Hmm. So here's what I believe. I believe that talent and ability and potential are ubiquitous and widely and randomly distributed, while access and opportunity are not. And so I believe as a leader, 
And as leaders, we have an obligation to readjust the, the aperture, the, the lens through which we view the world so that we can recognize talent and potential in order to harness it and to enable it and to um, provide folks capable, talented people with opportunities that may fall outside of our sort of normal codified orthodox standards. And I think Boston has a uniquely powerful opportunity to excel in this space because of its commitment to education, because of its infrastructure, because of its wealth, because of its its ethos. And if we can find a way to establish a generative, scalable platform for marginalized communities that are just reservoirs of talent, if we can find a way to harness that, I think the opportunities for this city and this region are exponential. But we have to have the courage and the will <laughs> to think differently and to take some risks and to define, you know, Boston's sort of bold bets uh, in this. Look, I haven't been here very long, but that's what I've taken away in the, in the year and a half that I've, that I've been here. That's a great observation of our region in a short time. Excited to see what's going to happen over the next yeah, several years with you here as a member of our community. And um, we like to close with some rapid fire questions. Okay. Are you ready? The fun sure. part. <laughs> uh, it's fun. Yeah. Off the top of your head, what are you currently reading or watching? Hmm. I'm currently reading Ron Chernow's um, Washington. And, you know, like in 1788, Washington came through Waltham. And he talks about how it wasn't very hospitable. There weren't, quote unquote, decent inns for him. <laughs> but, but so, you know, I live in Waltham and, and to read about that and I just got a kick out of that. And also, they talk about all these spots in Boston and in New York. And that is that just, oh, Turtle's just an amazing story. And, and I, I'm just getting a kick out of the book because, you know, I'm right here with it. And, and, and but I, I just finished, so I would recommend that it's a read, it's a tome, but it's a wonderful read. But I just finished the uh, Taylor Branch has a trilogy of the America and the King years, Parting the Waters, Color of Fire and at Canaan's Edge. And it talks about those are three books, each of them, I don't know, like 800 pages. And it talks about America from 1953 to 1968. It is the most fascinating, comprehensive, intimate, sometimes difficult, sometimes funny view of America during those years. And so those are, that's where my head is now and, and, and way back in the sort of, you know, um, 1700s uh, and in the uh, early uh, civil rights era. We'll have to check those out. Yeah. Who's a Boston leader or an organization to watch? I'm pretty excited about the new mayor. I think she's got her hands full, but she appears to have the requisite uh, gravitas to do some, some great things. And again, I don't really, I don't know enough about sort of Boston politics, but I'm, I'm excited to see what, um, what she's going to be able to, to do. And do you have a favorite spot in our city? You know, I really don't. I got to get out more. Again, when I got here, it was cold <laughs> and I was trying to focus on the job. And so I, I have to, I have to get out uh, more. We love getting downtown and, and we're still learning the walking routes and all that. And we just, we, we are energized. My wife and I and Phyllis are inspired by that. 
But I can't say yet that there's a, a favorite spot of mine, I, I suspect. All right, you got a lot to choose from. <laughs> yeah. And what makes you laugh? I have, well, what makes me laugh are my two, two-year-old twin grandsons, uh, identical <laughs> twin boys. And because they don't really, you know, they're two and they should be talking more and they, but they only talk to themselves and they got this little twin thing and they're not interested in engaging in conversation with anybody else, but each other. And it's just the funniest thing to see them go at it in their own little world, which I think is, you know, amazing. I think it's stressing their parents out a bit, but uh, they will talk to the rest of us when they're ready. Uh, but I get a kick out of that. That's cool. And finally, what's I wish you have for Boston? What well, wish I have for Boston is that it fulfills what I consider to be its enormous potential to lead the way and to be a standard for pluralism and opportunity uh, and growth in a way that will require other parts of the country to take notice. Uh, I think, as I, as I said, I, I think this place is, is uniquely capable of, of taking the lead in some really tough issues. And if not here, where? I mean, I, I don't know where else we might look for, uh, for that. So those are, that's, that's one of the hopes that I have for the, the area. I appreciate those comments for such a short time, Brent, that you've been here. You really have developed a Boston-centric view. Okay. <laughs> that's a good thing, a good thing, actually. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks, John and Carolyn. Appreciate the opportunity to be here. And that wraps up our time together. Thank you so much for joining us, Brent, and for sharing your insights. I'm John Bernstein. And I'm Carolyn Jones, and this is PNC C-Speak, the language of executives. Our guest today was Dr. Brent Kreit, president of Bentley University. You can find C-Speak at bizjournals.com backslash Boston or on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Until next time.